Detroit has lost black representation in local and national leadership in recent years. It's a point of tension for some community members in a city that's home to so many black entrepreneurs and artists and thought leaders. You've heard us talk about the fact that as of November's election, Detroit no longer has a black representative in Congress. And that's the first time in 70 years that's happened. On its own, that outcome might not be insurmountable. However, the redistricting process that paved the way for that election also eroded black representation in the state legislature in Lansing. Add to that the fact that a white man, Mike Duggan, has served as the city's mayor since 2014. Where does this leave a city that's one of the most closely identified with black life in America? Since 1973, 74, Detroit had been governed by a black mayor, Comey Young, Dennis Archer, Kwame Kilpatrick, uh, Dave Bing, right? And so for the first time in decades, we elected Mike Duggan. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Orlando Bailey is the engagement director for Bridge Detroit. He's also the co-host of a new limited podcast series from Bridge Detroit and public radio station WDET called What It Happened Was. The show interrogates what the loss of black representation in Congress means for Detroit, a city whose population is 77 percent black. I think the Detroit community in particular really began to have this conversation in trying to ensure that the representation nationally looked like the city of Detroit. And we know that Detroit is at least a 77 percent black city. Right. And the 13th district encompasses, you know, most of the city of Detroit and some other neighboring communities. But. With the election of Mike Duggan as mayor back in 2013, you, know, you know, folks were having this conversation in neighborhoods around what that meant. So there was precedent for this, you know, what, what seems unprecedented election um, in the 13th district. But we really wanted to make sure that we, you know, put it on public record. I was living out of state when Mike Duggan got elected. And this was happening so hard on the heels of the bankruptcy and all the pain that the city had gone through and, you know, not in a small way informed by the race of the people involved and the race of the people in state government who imposed uh, restrictions on Detroit. What was a standout to you about Mike Duggan's election? I, I mean, I couldn't quite get my head around whether it was an anomaly or part of its times or maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, I, I think it was a perfect storm that resulted in his election. I think Mike Duggan is no stranger to Detroit and no stranger to Southeast Michigan. He is a politician that Detroiters know and know very well from his time at the Detroit Medical Center, from his time as the Wayne County prosecutor, for the time that he served under at McNamara, right? Mike Duggan um, has been a mainstay uh, in the political uh, ether here in the city of Detroit. And so, you know, that stood out, right, uh, his familiarity with Detroiters. But what also stood out was that, you know, he ran a write-in campaign. Detroiters had to write in his name, and he won, you know, with a significant margin and lead. And so, you know, with that, right, coming off the heels of the bankruptcy and, you know, headed into a season where Detroit would be under financial review but and would have to produce financially solvent financials every year, uh, Mike Duggan got to steward in this narrative of revitalization and comeback 
and innovation that the city, I think, needed for so long. The thing that I observed in this comeback narrative is that Black people were absent from it. And that was the Mm -hmm. piece that was uh, and is still, you know, disturbing to me in a city that is 77 percent black. And we're talking about comeback and we're talking about revitalization. We must prop up the fact that there is a segment of black Detroiters who never left, who never had to come back. And in the midst of a city with crumbling financials and a scandal written city hall, it was black Detroiters that held up their neighborhoods and that kept it going. And that also needed to be acknowledged in a narrative and it was missing. There's an episode of the podcast with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. And for those who somehow may not may not be aware of her record. You know, she's someone who represented in the legislature before she moved on to Congress. She's Palestinian-American. She's, she's not a black Detroiter. You get into her school days in Detroit and how she felt uplifted in the city and, and like watched her mom receive moral support from black neighbors. Coming to like a PTA meeting or, or parent-teacher conferences, you didn't have that, you know, for her uh, growing up in Palestine. It was, it was kind of everybody knew everybody. But she, you know, she would try to speak up and she'd be like low voice and mm-hmm. kind of whispery. And it would be like black mothers in the in the room telling her, Fatima, you know, raise your voice. They can't hear you. Mm. Uh, but it was a way of empowering her and saying that she belonged. And that's what's so incredible. About and South Rashida America. Tlaib is also very upfront about the fact that uh, she she's not just open to getting reality checks from from black Detroiters that she represents. She expects it. Um, does that yeah well first of all does that track with what you have seen of her in the state legislature and congress yeah so uh before i i took the job at bridge detroit i was doing work in neighborhoods community development work for a community development nonprofit in the district that congresswoman to represented and for her to seem to have always been in washington Right. Really, you know, making sure that uh, her voice and the voices of residents that she represented is heard from her perspective. She happened to always be in Detroit as well. I never seen someone who (laughs) felt like, you know, like she was everywhere. I think that is her superpower, like her constituent services and her ability to show up for residents who ask her to show up. I have seen the Congresswoman at events with two and 300 people, and I have seen her show up to events and stay at events where only 10 people showed up because all of, you know, all of it is as important. And, you know, at one point being a curator of some of these events where she was a special guest, she's the last one. She was the always is the last one to leave because she's going to give her attention and talk to every single constituent that wants to talk to her. It, it was really fascinating to see. And so what she was describing to me in her interview tracks with what I have seen over the years. It really does. Are there ways in which Rashida Tlaib just by being who she was, and I don't want to put aside her her work record, which is real, but do you think she opened the discussion for a modern electorate about whether Detroit could be well represented by someone who was not a black Detroiter? I think so. I think so. I think that the Congresswoman is well aware that she is not a black person. But I think the connection that Detroiters feel to her 
is the connection of being a Detroiter, right? If you talk to the Congresswoman really about her upbringing and, you know, the community that she grew up in and who she went to school with and the people that she loves and the people that love her, she's a Detroit girl (laughs) through and through. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, uh, her being a Detroiter is what resonates, that the spirit of Detroit, the candor that so many residents carry in conversation, the the tension that we often carry when we are talking about the state of our, you know, our national politic and what's happening and what's not happening and how do we communicate our messages upward. And I think that the Congresswoman tries her best to deliver in that same Detroit voice to uh, the national level. And I think that Detroiters respect her for it. They keep electing her. They keep electing her. And so, you know, there is this tension there because she understands that that proportional representation matters, but she is also being elected by an electorate that is majority black. And so I think that says something, right? Uh, The people that I've spoken to, even as a journalist, are happy uh, with her record and how she speaks up. Uh, Where I see dissent really is among the political elite in the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party here in the state and in the city, uh, where there's this disdain for her and her affinity to Palestine and her not being black. But, you know, the, the other thing that I would amplify about her um, and Sri Tanadar is that they're not black, but they're also not white. And so they also come from two marginalized communities. And if that is something that resonated with Detroiters, I don't know. We have to ask. Well, that brings us to what happened in the primary election leading up to last year's congressional race. Of course, Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence was retiring and we had the the sort of dance moves associated with redistricting in which lines got redrawn. Rashida Tlaib obviously still in Congress, but also there was this this question of an open seat and a split in the ticket that happened for the 13th district. Sri Tanadar is, is a wealthy Indian American. He's not from Detroit. He does not have even that many years in the city, but he won a small plurality of the vote on a ticket that was split by several lifelong black Detroiters. What did you make of the large field before the election? Mm-hmm. Well, at one point, I used to think that a large field was good for politics. <laughs> but in this case, I do feel there needed to be some sort of consensus around who Detroiters should back for this seat. And I know that the county executive Warren Evans tried to pull together a committee, this legacy committee, that is not without critique around representation on that legacy committee, the timing of it. I think by the time Mm -hmm. this legacy committee was pulled together, uh, it was way too late for anybody (laughs) who had thrown their hat in the ring and had begun raising money to say, I'm just going to bow out. And so we had a very crowded field full of lifelong Detroiters and Sri Tanadar. That split contributed to this marginal victory that we saw for Sri Tanadar. Now, this sets a precedent for me, how I observe this tendency on part of some folks 
who feel like they can move into the city and run for elective office without doing their due diligence to become a part of the fabric of the city of Detroit. The disconnect mm-hmm. that so many people highlight about Sri Tanadar and people do some people do feel disconnected from him and I say that that disconnection that tension there is because he's not a Detroiter. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear what Sri Tanadar had to say about representing a city where some view him as an outsider. I also hosted a, a candidate forum and debate where every single candidate for the 13th Congressional District showed up except Sri Tanadar. Back in just a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Orlando, you spoke with newly elected Congressman Sri Tanadar in the very last episode of the podcast. And he's serving Michigan's 13th District now, which covers most of Detroit. But unlike Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who also represents other parts of the city, he was not raised in Detroit, and there are some folks who view him as an outsider. How did he explain his reason for feeling like he could be an appropriate representative? Well, he believes that, and he's, he's right in the statement, that the seat belongs to the people and the people elected him. Now, he's absolutely correct, and that's a fact. I think that his ability to leverage story. And his money to cascade his story was an effective political tactic. In addition to him always being on television and having the money to run ads, I, you know, I said before that Street Tanadar was in these streets. <laughs> mm-hmm. like he was in the streets and he was getting to know people and he was talking to the electorate and neighborhood, regular old neighborhood folks. And he contends that his race never came up in any of these conversations. Whether or not I believe that, (laughs) you know, Mm. is up for discussion. I always hear about this in the media that, you know, Sri's not black. And I, but, you know, the people that I talk to, they never talk about me not being African-American. So I thought maybe I'll start asking people. Uh, So I started asking uh, people Uh, What do you think about me not being African-American? Does that bother you? Does that matter uh, as I am looking to represent uh, uh, this city um, in Congress? And people were like, fix the problems, Sri. Fix the problems. We need better schools. You know, we need to feel safe in our homes. 
One of the things that I would also highlight is that as a journalist, as a podcaster who had throughout the primary process requested many, many interviews with Sri Tanadar to have this exact conversation, none of those requests were granted. I also hosted a candidate forum and debate where every single candidate for the 13th Congressional District showed up except Sri Tanadar. I think that it was effective on his strategy to stay away from some of the rigorous questioning that he would have had to endure if he had participated in a forum or in a debate or in an interview uh, with a journalist who uh, was, you know, tracking the primaries for, you know, the public record. You you also had a conversation with Adam Ollier, who was a state senator. He was one of those who ran in the primary against Sri Tanadar, and he was the second highest vote getter. And Adam's been very, very critical of the redistricting process and everything that happened, and that there were fewer opportunities, not just within Congress, but also in the legislature because of the way primaries work and the way that lines were drawn. With the acknowledgement that he may not be done with politics yet, what did he have to say about where we go from here? Well, if you listen to the interview on what had happened was Adam is very optimistic around what the next two years can look like. He has said, you know, Sri has expressed to him that he would love to work with him to advance um, an agenda that Detroiters can get behind. I also think that, you know, his criticism, even throughout the redistricting process, you know, came to bear with this election. I think, you know, the primary election was a referendum on the redistricting process. And while, you know, so many critics feel like it's miles ahead of where it was, I think what ended up happening is colorblindness in terms of how some of these districts were drawn and how it literally cuts through neighborhoods. Like one side of the street is in a district and the other side of the street is another district. So it was party really over proportional representation by race. And so what does that mean when we can get a Democrat elected, but does that Democrat look like the majority population that it's representing? If it is true that Detroit has grown past the point of political machines being able to wield power behind the scenes, do you think that that offers opportunities and or consequences for how the will of the people gets gets figured out? I mean, no question, it's it's a little messier process. Yeah, it is messy. And I think politics are messy. I do think that it presents an opportunity for folks who are unattached to... Uh, political allegiances and favors who are really about the work to really step forward and organize people to support their candidacy. I also think that what we saw when you have an extremely crowded field, factions begin to form that splits the vote in a way where a wealthy American can come in and finance his own campaign and grab that seat the way that he did. And so I think I think it's, you know, uh, some tension there, some give and take there, right? Like, I fancy a candidate who really doesn't feel a political allegiance to any machine, but there's also a challenge <laughs> that comes along with that in terms of, you know, crowded fields and what that looks like for uh, Black Detroiters feeling represented. 
No question there are people listening right now who are living with the consequences of everything that happened in election 2022. But we also may be heard by some people who don't live in Detroit, who maybe don't think this story impacts them. Are there things about black representation in Detroit that matter to Michigan as this is getting litigated in real time? Yes. Detroit being the largest city in Michigan, also Detroit being uh, the largest majority black city in America. If Detroit goes, so goes the nation. Simone Lightfoot, a mentor of mine, always says that Detroit is big mama. And Mm. black Detroiters have been for so long the champions of equity, of community development, of activism, of innovation and change for not just black Detroiters, but for everyone who has an interest and loves Detroit and Southeastern Michigan. Heather McGee talks about this zero sum game in her book, The Sum of Us, and how the advancement of racial equity and justice issues like housing and water mortgages and being able to live where you want to live, not only those kinds of reforms will not only benefit those who are on the margins of that reform, but benefit society as a whole. If Black people in Detroit are doing well, that is to the benefit of all of Michigan and the rest of the nation. And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's episode was produced by Ronia Kavansag. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.